of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do when you have a plant and something is dead? There's a dead flower or a dead little twig or a dead leaf or even a dead branch. Or if you have an apple tree in the backyard, there's a big, huge branch that's totally dead and rotten. What do you do with it? Well, I think the, the gardeners amongst us would say, I think, that you would take that away. You would get rid of it. You'd remove it. You don't want dead things on your living plants, do you? You don't want dead things in your garden. They're useless. Now, the diagnosis of the Scriptures with respect to the human race is that we are a dead vine. Jesus in John chapter 15, which we read together, says, I am the true vine, the genuine, the real vine. The human race is a dead vine in Adam. Vines are supposed to be alive. They're supposed to produce flowers and fruit and beauty and refreshment and joy. But what do you do when you have a dead vine? Just dead, just sitting there, rotting in your garden. Well, sooner or later, you rip it up. You rip it out and you burn it. Now in John 15, the Lord Jesus tells us, I am the true vine, in the sense of the real vine, the genuine vine. That means that there are fake vines that are not real because they don't produce. There's no life in them. There's no fruit. There's no beauty. There's no joy. There's no refreshment. And so we remember, as I pointed out before we began reading the Lord's Days here, we remember way back in Lord's Day 7, before the church started going through each line of the creed, you remember that the questioner said, well, if, if we have a Savior, and if he's dealt with sin, and if when Adam fell, everybody died, does that mean to say that when Jesus comes along, now everybody's better again, everybody's okay? As all died in Adam, so all are made alive in Christ. The Scriptures even use language like that. And the answer from the Scripture was, no, it's not an automatic salvation willy-nilly for every single person in human history and on the planet. Only those are saved who are connected with Christ, who by a true faith are grafted into him and accept all his benefits. And I want to work a little bit with this vine metaphor here that the Lord uses in John 15, because this is important. The vine in Adam is the human race in its fallen state. And all you need to do to be in Adam, to be connected to that dead vine, is to be born. Every human being is born from another fallen, from another set of fallen human beings. And this vine in Adam, this fallen human race, this race of sinners that are under the uh, righteous anger and wrath of God, children of wrath, dead in their sins and trespasses, this vine... It's rooted in the toxic soil of total depravity. It is watered by the toxic sludge of sin and rebellion against God. It is dead and it is dying in root and branch. And the dying, decaying branches can only produce dying, decaying twigs. And if there are any fruit, all they can be are bitter and poisonous. That's the picture, the biblical picture of the human race outside of Christ, in Adam, the fallen Adam. 
Now, what do you do? I mean, I hope you wouldn't have a vine like this in your garden, but what would you do with it? You would, you would burn it. Burn it all. It's an offense. It's very presence in my garden is an offense against me as a gardener. This is not what my garden is for. It is a, an offense against the one who planted it and bade it to bear fruit. And so that is, that is the, the situation of the human race in Adam, a dead vine. Now, Laws 5 and 6 said there's a solution to human sin. There is a redeemer, there's a messiah, there's a reconciler, there's a mediator. And Laws 7 says that to be saved, you, you need to lose your connection with the deadness of humanity in Adam. You need a new connection with a new head of a new human race, and you need to be connected to Christ. And that is, the, that is the confession of Lord's Day 23. We've just gone through the entire creed, and the creed, of course, we're confessing not just abstract theological truth, we're confessing who God is, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing. And we confess that as he reveals himself to us, so we believe him. We believe in him. And then the questioner says in Laws 23, question answer 59, what does it help you? What's the use of all of this confession about who God is and what he has done? How does that change your life? And the answer is, well, it changes everything. Because I'm not dead in sin anymore, am I? I'm in Christ, and that means I'm righteous before God. That means I can walk right into heaven through that new and living way which goes beyond the veil. I can walk into the presence of God, and I can be accepted. I can be welcomed because I belong. I'm his child. I'm beloved. I'm pure. I'm holy. I reflect perfectly the very character of God as his son or as his daughter. And because I know God, I don't just know about him, I know him. I know him as my father, and I know him in Christ whom he has sent. I know the Father and I know the Son in the Spirit, and therefore I have life everlasting. Because I'm in Christ. That's what changes everything. You see, what characterizes me is no longer that I produce the bitter fruit of sin and deserve the wages of sin. That's what I used to be. That's who I used to be. That's the old me. And we sang about the old me. You remember when we sang Psalm 36? You know, it's such a temptation to skip the first stanza. It's all negative. Deep in my heart and the voice that lures the wicked to his choice of sin and self-delusion and this evil and crooked paths and deceit and malice and sneering. Who wants to sing that when you come to worship? But it's because we know that first stanza, brothers and sisters, that we can sing the second and the third with so much joy. This is who we are. This is our old nature. We, deep in my heart, I know that voice. I know what wickedness is because that's what I used to be. That My old nature is still there. It's not totally dead yet. And I know, I know. It's not just out there, the wickedness. It's right here in my old nature. I know exactly who I used to be. 
I know what I am like if it were not for Christ. If it were not that I was, was in Christ, I know exactly what I would be. But I'm no longer that. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleansed. Such were some of you, says the apostle. That's what we used to be. But now I'm in Christ. And what characterizes me in Christ is that I am holy, righteous, and innocent, that the gates of heaven are open to me, that when I sing Psalm 15 and say, who can ascend the holy mount of the Lord? Only the perfectly righteous person. I say, yes, that's me. I get to go up the mountain into the presence of God and the gates will lift their heads. And as the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ comes in, he will say of me, his child, he will say of us, his bride, she is with me, she comes along, she belongs. This is what it means to have faith in Christ, to be grafted into Christ by true faith, to be united with Christ by true faith, to have union with Christ. It is to confess together with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. The old me died. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's how it helps me to believe all this. It changes everything. Now, well, how does that work? And that's the next question, isn't it? Question answer 60, if you have your psalm book open. How, how does it work? How are you righteous before God? You look like a sinner to me. Every single person residing in the catechism doesn't take too much digging to realize that they're an imperfect person. So why are they saying these things? Why are they saying they're righteous and they deserve eternal life? Talk to the most holy member of the church. Doesn't take too long. You figure out, yeah, he, she is a sinner too. So, so how does it work, all this righteousness? How does it work? And question 60 says, well, it works in this way. First of all, I understand who I am. I know who I am. I am part of that tree of death, and I bear the fruit of death. By birth, I am connected to Adam in his fall. I'm just another twig, another branch in the tree of fallen humanity. And you know, if you figure there's this dead tree which is sucking up from the ground poisonous, uh, toxic sludge, no branch, no twig in that tree can possibly exert itself to make itself alive and healthy. You, it just wouldn't work. Because it will reflect the character of the tree of which it is a, a part a branch, a twig, which is drinking from the poisonous sap which comes from the poisonous root, has no hope. And that's, look at these lines here in question answer 60 and the answer there. My conscience accuses me. I'm not making this up because in the word of God, I see myself in the law of God, in the mirror of the law of God, and my conscience responds to that. This is who I am. I've grievously sinned, not just sinned, but grievously sinned, against all God's commandments, not just some of them. I've never kept any of them, so my whole life I've been doing this, and I'm still inclined to all evil. I still, in my, in my nature, in Adam, I choose evil. That's all my evil nature, that's all my old nature can choose. It chooses according to its character, and its character is evil. 
And so, brothers and sisters, once again, you, you cannot glorify God for his salvation. You cannot glorify the Lord Jesus Christ for his grace and mercy if you don't get the bad news right first. Because if you're just a really nice person and you've got a few things that you need a little bit of help with, you just need Jesus to just get you over the bar and into heaven with a little bit of help, you will not know how to thank and worship Jesus forever because you did it. But the believer here says, you know what? I don't stand a chance. I can't change who I am. And who I am is such a mess that, and it's such a terror that I can't even come close to a holy God. Yet God, yet God. And these are the words of grace. Yet God, without any merit of my own, without anything that I've done to earn something, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Now, imputing is the idea that you, you take something and you put it on someone's account. And so what Christ has done is he's taken our sin off us and he's put his righteousness on us. And if we use the language of money, which sometimes is easy to understand for us because in fact it's pretty big in our lives, our day-to-day -day lives. If I have a, a debt of two trillion dollars on my checking account, I'm overdrawn two, three, four trillion dollars and I can't get out of it because I can't even pay the interest per day. Jesus gets rid of the debt. He takes it. It's gone. So the balance is zero. That's the, the satisfaction of Christ. He pays my debt. But then he puts a positive balance of infinite trillions on it. And that's the shocking thing, the thing we don't always think of, do we? We, we, we think about God getting rid of our sins. Wonderful. Now let's try again to be good people. But he gets rid of our sins, and then he gives us his righteousness. He gives us an infinitely, not just a little bit, he gives us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Now, tell me, are there any defects in Christ's holiness? Is there anything lacking in Christ's righteousness? It is an infinite righteousness. It is an infinite holiness. It's something we can't fathom. Because it is the righteousness and holiness of the Son of God. That righteousness, that holiness is on your account. It's on you. You have it. God gave it to you. We've got to think through these things. We just take them for granted so often. We don't really realize because it's hard to realize until we get to eternity and then we'll take an eternity to figure it out. It'll keep getting deeper and deeper our knowledge and understanding of how incredibly amazing this is that Christ made satisfaction. Christ made everything right. Christ dealt with our sin and guilt. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was subject to all the ravages of sin. He took on himself all of our diseases and our curse and on the cross, all the righteous burning judgment of God that we deserve consumed him all your guilt, all your sin, all your curse on Jesus. And it was burned up. It was dealt with. It's gone. It's paid for. It exists no more. Nothing left of it. And then that righteousness and holiness is the opposite. 
that God takes you from the mass of fallen humanity, that dead vine in Adam, he cuts you loose from that death. And he takes you and he takes me and he says, little branch, you know what you deserve? You unfruitful, dead, decaying little branch, you know what you deserve in my garden? You deserve to go in the burn pile. But I'm not going to do that. I consume Jesus for your sins. I burn him up in the fires of eternal hell. I take you, unworthy as you are, and I graft you into the true vine, the real vine, the genuine vine, the one that has life, the one that bears flowers and fruit and provides beauty and refreshment and joy, the one in whose Roots and in whose stem and in whose branches courses the power of the sap of eternal life. That's what God connects us to. We were connected to death, now we're connected to life. That's a big change. And, and there are different aspects to this connection. There is the physical aspect where many of us born in the church, or some of us come to the church later on in life, and we're, we're connected externally as we... We are given the sign of belonging. We're given the sign of baptism. Or we, we profess our faith and we participate in the supper. These are all connections which are external and physical. Not only external and physical, but they are external and physical. We attend the services. We participate in the life of the church. We are under the preaching. But that's in itself not enough. If you've ever grafted something... I haven't, but I've seen people do it. If you've ever grafted something, you know that a physical connection is not enough. You can, you can make the little slice, you can insert the graft, you can bind it up, and sometimes it doesn't take, does it? Sometimes it just sits there dead. Why? Because the sap, the sap doesn't enter. There's no living connection. There's just a mechanical connection. It's just sitting there. It stays dead. And you know there are people in the church like that? in the church of Christ. I'm not just saying this congregation, but there are people in Christianity like that. They, they have the external connection. They're baptized. They go to the supper. They show up for church. They say Jesus' words. They talk about the gospel. There's nothing there. There's no life. There's no life. It's what you need, brothers and sisters, is not merely the external. The externals are glorious, blessed things, but you need all of these things Look at the end of question 60, answer 60. These things he grants, as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Oh, how did this get into a Reformed confession? We have to do something. Is this a printing mistake? I thought we couldn't do anything. If only I accept this gift. God tells us, brothers and sisters, God tells us we need to repent and believe the first time and then daily. We need to stretch out empty hands and say, Lord, I receive your grace. And, and faith is, the Belgic Confession says, faith is the hand of the soul, the hand of the soul by which we receive God's grace in Christ and the benefits of Christ. We receive them by faith. And that faith itself, God gives to us. It's not something we do. It's not something we work. But we need to believe. We need to believe.
And so when you have that grafted twig and it's mechanically connected, but then the, the, there's a living connection made and the sap begins to course into that new graft and then the power of the life of the vine courses into that little twig and, and transforms it and makes it alive and produces flower and fruit and leaves. That's what's happening when there is true faith. Now, being grafted is a gift of grace. It's not something we can make happen. God makes it happen. God calls you into communion with him and with his church, either through having you born in a Christian family and brought for baptism or, or speaking to you in his word and giving you repentance and, and faith to come as an adult to the church. But God calls you into communion and he gives you the gift to believe. It's a gift of grace. It's like the gift of faith so that no man may boast. It is of grace alone that we have a new heart, that we are alive and not dead. So something to think about here, brothers and sisters, is that all of these glorious truths and riches are, are for believers. The Bible and the confession doesn't say that all of these glorious truths and riches are for members of a specific church or members of a specific denomination. It doesn't say that. It says that all of these things are for those who believe. Who believe. Just showing up isn't good enough. All the benefits of being in Christ, to be alive, to be acceptable to God, to be fruitful in God's service, to be good and holy and pleasing in his sight, we receive these benefits. We make them our own by faith. That's true on the one hand, and on the other hand, God does it from beginning to end, as he did it in the life of our brother Benjamin, as we saw him testify this morning before God and his people. Every covenant child, by grace, God works in their life. Grace, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. The righteousness is God's, not ours. Jesus made the payment, we didn't. Christ did all the work. We did nothing. Christ suffered the curse. Christ died the death. Christ paid the payment. And he comes to us with good news and says, my child, it's all done. It's all settled. It's all dealt with. He comes to us with the gospel in our baptism, in the word preached, in the Holy Supper. And he says, here, enjoy it. You can share in Christ and all of his benefits. You can share in what I have done and in who I am. The apostle says it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ was, is the Son of God eternally, and he, as Messiah, as true man, he had no sin and, and God made him who had and knew no sin to be sin, so that on that cross, Christ was the very incarnation of sin. All the sins of all the elect of all times, that huge, massive, repulsive, disgusting sight of all the sin and guilt and curse that is on the church of God, it was all put on Jesus. And God poured out his wrath against that 
incarnation of sin, when he saw his eternal son on that cross, he saw my sin and your sin. That's all he saw. And he destroyed in righteous, burning judgment. He made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees his eternal son, his beloved son, his righteous son, his holy son, his innocent son, the son who has kept the law perfectly as true man, as the mediator, who has never sinned, who has only ever done everything according to the will of God. When God looks at you, that's what he sees, believer. That's what he sees. As hard as it is to believe, that's what he sees, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness. There is no defect. There's no imperfection. There's nothing lacking in the righteousness of God. There's nothing that you need to work harder at to be better so that God likes you more. It's done. You're perfectly righteous and perfectly good in his sight. When he looks at you, he sees a man, a woman, a child who owes him nothing. Nothing. As if I had never had nor committed any sin. That's how he sees you. As if I have never done anything wrong. When the Father looks at you, believer, when the Father looks at you, he sees someone who has never done anything wrong. So if that's how he sees you, why are you beating yourself up with your guilt, feeling that you don't, you don't match up to God's standards, that you, that, you, that you have something in you which makes you repulsive to God. That's simply not true. Christ has taken that away. And he has given you perfect righteousness. As if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. So when God looks at us, the Father looks at us in Christ, he sees not a lawbreaker, but a law keeper. He sees a man, a woman, a child who is perfectly keeping his will, who is perfectly keeping his law, the law of love, to love God perfectly, love your neighbor perfectly, as perfectly as Jesus, as acceptable as Jesus, as beloved as Jesus, as holy as Jesus, as precious in his sight as Jesus himself. That is the gospel. That's what we get. That's what we get when we believe. Now, question answer 61 says, well, that's a bit difficult to, to wrap my mind around. What, what are you saying here? Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? And this is an important answer. It's a little one, but it's an important one. It's not the quality of my faith. It's not the worthiness of my faith. I speak to Struggling believers sometimes, and they say, I, I don't have enough faith. I'm not sure I have faith. I'm not sure I'm really forgiven. Because they're looking at themselves. And if you look at yourself, you're never going to find anything to depend on or to trust in. And you should be very, very concerned because there's nothing there. But we need to look to Christ. I'm not righteous and forgiven because I have a really strong faith. I'm righteous and forgiven because I have a strong Savior. I'm not righteous and forgiven because I have a perfect faith. I'm righteous and forgiven because I have a perfect Savior. And I receive this righteousness which is His. And I make it my own by faith 
only. And so, brother and sister, don't sit there digging in your heart trying to figure out if you're good enough, if you're believing good enough. You're never going to get anywhere. You're just going to get worse and worse and feel, feel bad more and more. It's not your faith which makes you worthy. We say together with that, that fellow that said to Lord Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Even the tiniest faith, God is working in you with his renewing power of the Spirit, cleansing, sanctifying, transforming, renewing. Don't focus on the quality of your faith or the size of your faith. Don't focus on yourself at all. Focus on something which is rock solid, which is unchangeable, which is an anchor that we have in the heavens beyond the veil, behind the curtain, the holy of holies of the universe. We have Jesus, Jesus our Redeemer, Jesus Christ the Holy, the Beloved, the solid unchangeable, rock-solid, unchangeable person and work of Christ is what we anchor our faith in. And it doesn't change. It doesn't change. Well, question answer 62, and we'll deal with this briefly, Lord's Day 24. Question answer 62 says, well, this is all very nice, but I kind of feel that I'm not doing much here. And why can't I? Why can't I do good things to please God and get righteous or at least contribute somewhat? Why do I have to just wait on God's mercy and grace? Why can't I? I've heard it so much in the movies and, and the books and the songs and all the stuff that I get in the self-help sessions that, that I can reach deep down inside me and I can find power to become a better person, to become my true, authentic Self, why are you directing me outside of myself to someone else? What about me? Can I do something? And why can't we collectively, as human beings, make the world a better place? Or at least kind of help God and come alongside him and contribute? So the questioner here is saying, well, why can't we, we're in this dead tree, you know, which is drinking up this toxic poisonous sludge, why can't we as branches become living and healthy and then change the tree? Well, to ask the question is to answer it. It's putting the cart before the horse. The fruit is a consequence of the health of the tree. It's not the cause of the health of the tree. If we're in Adam, all we can do is produce bitter fruit, dead fruit, or no fruit at all. And so if you understand anything about sin, and about the fall, and about total depravity, you won't even ask this question because you know there is no such thing as a good work which will please God. There's a little footnote here in question and answer 62. It's Isaiah 64 verse 6 where the prophet says that in terms of achieving any kinds of righteousness before God, even our best works are like filthy rags. And when he uses the term filthy rags, he's talking about the kind of rags that women would use on a monthly basis. It's a disgusting picture which would automatically make someone unclean. That filthiness, that uncleanness would not allow you to come into the presence of God. And so when the, when the prophet says, your best works are like filthy rags, he's saying the very best things that you can possibly do where you think, wow, I was a really good person for God is something repulsive. Anything done 
in your own strength and according to your own nature outside of Christ. Well, that's every false religion and every fake version of Christianity. All of them have the same concept, and that is that by your work, you can achieve the blessing of God, that by your work, you can become a better person, that you can win God's favor. Do this and you shall live. And every false religion says that's possible. And every false version of Christianity says that's possible. Only true Christianity, only the true gospel says Christ did this, and because he did it for you, you shall live in him. And you remember Romans 3, 21 and 22. I'm going to read that again, Romans 3, 21 and 22, where the, the, the scripture says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the only way to get true righteousness, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we finish Lord's Day 24, there are some more questions about good works and the place of good works, because the Christian life should be full of good works. The question that the Catechism is dealing with is not that good works don't exist. The question is, where do they come? Do they come before or after? Do they cause our righteousness and salvation, or are they a consequence of our righteousness and our salvation? And so the question the questioner asks in question answer 63, well, don't they, aren't they worth anything? God says that he will reward us for the things we do, and certainly the Bible does say that. But what else does the Bible say? Luke 17, verse 10. Luke 17, verse 10, the, the Lord Jesus is talking about someone who has a servant, and that servant is doing their work. And if the servant does their work, he says, do you think that the master will say, oh, thank you so much for doing what you're supposed to do? You know, do you, when you, when you uh, go into the car in the morning, you start the car and, and you drive to work and then you turn it off and park it, do you have a little ritual where you say to your car, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing that. No, you don't because it's supposed to do that. You don't think that's, you think it's unusual when it's not doing what it's supposed to do. But when it's doing what it's supposed to do, yeah, that's what it's there for. And so the Lord Jesus says in Luke 17, 10, so also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. If we would perfectly live our lives, never sin and do everything good, we couldn't walk into the presence of God and say, Lord, are you impressed with us? Because he wouldn't need to be. I made you to do that. Why are you so impressed with yourself? That's what you're supposed to do. And so we, we can't come to God and expect great accolades and rewards if we do something which is good. He doesn't owe us anything. We say, Lord, I, I, I spent a whole day without lying. Do I get a star or a, a ribbon? No, because you're not supposed to lie. What's so impressive about that? You see, we were created to love God's law, to love God, to love our neighbor, to love truth, to speak truth. And we can't go looking for God to be impressed when we approximate some of the things that we're made to do. And the problem is our standard. The problem is what we're comparing with. If the standard is our sin, if we look at our sin and the sin of others, and then we, we get a little bit better, we, go, we 
We're a little bit head and shoulders above the others, and we're very impressed with ourselves. But that's the wrong standard. The standard needs to be God's perfect and holy law. And when we look into that law, which is the picture of the, the perfect righteousness of Christ, then we look bad, and then we're not too impressed with ourselves at all. The amazing thing is that God crowns our weak, imperfect efforts with his blessing. He sanctifies and consecrates our work to make it holy to his glory, not because we're so good, but because he's so good. And so you read, for instance, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8. I'll just turn there for a moment, 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, where uh, Paul is speaking about a, a crown of righteousness that is reserved for him. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is he talking about? Is it something he earns? No, this is something that God in his grace, he crowns the work that he did in us. Paul says that in another place. He says, I worked harder than everybody else, yet it was not me, it was not I, but Christ or God working in me. So God gets all the glory. When we do good works, it's because the, the Lord Jesus, through his spirit, is working these works in us. And if God crowns those good works with his blessing, then he's crowning his own work in us and we give him all the praise. Now, in question and answer 64, the, where we end here, the, the questioner says, well, this is a very disturbing doctrine because if sinners don't have to do anything because they can't do anything to become good people, if they can't even contribute a little bit, then people are just going to sit there and sin, and they're going to say, well, let us sin so that grace may abound. God is righteous, and God gives righteousness. God gives grace. God forgives. So let me, you know, dive into a life of sin so that the worse I am, the more praise God gets for forgiving me a sinner. And Paul addresses that in the letter to the Romans. He says that's not how it works. By no means. We do not uh, give ourselves over to sin so that grace may abound. Why do people react like this? Why do they say, you know, grace is a dangerous doctrine, dangerous teaching? It's going to make people careless and wicked. You know, the legalists hate grace. They, they want to keep people in line. They want to make sure that people are doing the right thing. And there's a little legalist in, in all of us, brothers and sisters. Kind of look at each other. We check each other out. Are they, are they walking the line there? Or are they, oh, I don't know. You're supposed to do that? You're supposed to wear those? You're supposed to act like that? You're supposed to talk like that? You're supposed to make those choices? Not sure that's a good Christian thing. I'm not sure I would do that, so it's probably not a good thing. We're very legalistic deep down in our souls. We've got all these standards that we raise up. And the fact that God just forgives sinners, and that we don't have to do anything to be forgiven, it seems too much. It seems too generous. It seems too open. And it's gonna, people are just going to go and do what they want. And so there's the offense of grace there, which, of course, the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day hated. And this is the offense of the gospel. Grace is offensive. Because grace tells us that we're so bad that no matter what we do, we're just going to make it worse. There's no way we can possibly draw near to God and do anything to win his favor. We depend totally on his mercy. That's an offensive thing. People don't like to be told that they're that bad, that they're such write-offs. 
But when you know grace, when you know Christ, when you're engrafted by true faith into the vine, can you remain dead? Can you remain unfruitful? No, you can't. It's impossible. It is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. When the elders come visit us every year, that's what they're looking for. They're saying, hey, are you connected to Jesus mechanically? Just shown up? Or are you connected vitally in a living relationship with Christ? And how is the Spirit working in your life? How are you advancing in holiness and sanctification? How are you advancing in mortifying the flesh and, and putting to death the, the desires of the flesh? How are you growing in the Lord? How are you reflecting the image of Christ more and more? That happens in believers. It happens because it has to happen. It's impossible to be in Christ and to be connected with him by the power of the Spirit and not show the power of the Spirit in your life. It's impossible. There will be the fruit. And if you know, you know. If you know Christ, you know the power of his resurrection. You know the power of the gospel for the salvation of all who believe from faith to faith. You know the renewing power of his spirit sanctifying, transforming from glory to glory after the image of Christ. In Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ and everything that goes with it. We are renewed according to his image. We have the mind of Christ. We think like him. We live in Christ. We live for Christ. We live out of Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And when that's happening in someone's life, you can tell. You can tell it from a mile off. The difference between a dead branch and a dead vine and a living, fruitful, flowering branch on a living vine it doesn't take a lot of work to see the difference, brothers and sisters. You can tell. You can tell if a plant is dead or alive. And so look at your own growth in Christ. Look at your growth in holiness and love and joy and peace. And if you don't see yourself growing, if you see yourself slow to grow, don't try to produce those things. Don't try to fake it till you make it. It doesn't work. You need more connection. You need to have more fruit of the Spirit, more spirit in you. The Spirit of Jesus comes to us, brothers and sisters, through the living preaching of the gospel as the primary means of grace. And so if you, if you say, Lord, I, 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 I don't, I'm not happy with my progress in Christ, then seek the Word of God. Read it, study it, meditate upon it, memorize it. Come faithfully to hear it preached, because in the preaching especially, the Spirit of God is at work to knit you more and more together to the Lord Jesus. You know, you may say, Lord, I, I just don't have enough fruit. I don't have enough fruit. And even that, even that, that recognition, even that desire is a mark of grace, because dead sinners don't care if they don't have fruit. If you're looking at your life and saying, Lord, I, I, I want to be more like Jesus, that's a sign that you know him and that you are united to him by true faith. Because dead sinners don't long for holiness. Dead sinners don't long for the fruit of the Spirit. If you, if you long for holiness, if you long for the fruit of the Spirit, if you say, Lord, please work it in me, then know that you are connected to God by faith in the Spirit, in Christ, God is at work in you. 
Let go of your own righteousness. Let go of your own efforts. Let go of your own work. Let go of your own efforts to justify yourself and to make yourself a better person. Hold on to Jesus by true faith because he is our one redeemer. Amen.